after the rapture of the children? Get ready. We're in the first, uh, only Philippians chapter 2. Philippians uh, chapter 2, please, this morning. It's always hard on the, the, the family when I leave and come back with uh, having preached for a while because that means I have a lot to say and there's no one else to say it to. So here you go. We just had a major harangue from your pastor in uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through 14. Sorry, verses 14 through 18. That's what it was. Philippians 2, 14 through 18, where Paul is painting the portrait of someone who says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's every paragraph of Philippians is convicting because it reminds us that, you know, whatever it is that we think we're doing, well, we're going to, you know, fix the culture. We're not, uh, we're going to defend our freedom. Not if half the electorate throws it away. Uh, we're going to, we're going to do whatever we're going to do our work. I'm going to go to work and do my work. And if that's all we're thinking of, then we're missing the point of life. And as Paul says in verse 18, we're running in vain. It's a waste of life. And that's what's so awesomely convicting. Can I use awesome as an adverb and say awesomely? Probably not. All right. That was an awesomely use of, no, that would be awesome. That adjective use. Okay. Well, now we move in Paul's experience with the Philippians and what he's talking about to them after giving this sort of self-portrait and this communion of suffering for Christ together. And we rejoice together and he commands them to rejoice if he must die for the sake of the gospel on their behalf. We move to Paul doing a little bit of business with them about a little, little administrative work about what's coming. And he's going to send two emissaries, two people to see them. And I suspect, um, it doesn't say if they're going to go together or apart. I would send, if I was Paul, I'd try to send them together, but let me give you a little bit of a backstory on this part of the message. Philippians is in part a response, a thank you note. It's, it's kind of much more than that, but it's a response to the overwhelming support Paul receives from the Philippians that keeps him in full-time ministry. It pays the bills, it pays the light bill, it keeps him fed, and it enables him to do the work that he needs to do with various things, like the very expensive commodity that gives us our spiritual life today, and we all know that is paper or parchment or vellum or whatever Paul originally wrote on. Very expensive to send these letters, very uh, resource intensive. He's got people, since he can't leave, since he's in prison, he has to send messengers and equip them for their journey. His gospel enterprise is whatever it takes to get the message out using the technology at the time. He's using the internet of their day. And we all know that is the Roman road system. The great technological uh, leap forward is the Roman road system in Paul's day, a fullness of times thing where God used the Roman technological advance to, to spread the gospel throughout the Roman empire. And Paul is going to send this letter that he's writing right now to them in the hands of Timothy 
and Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus was one of their number. Timothy is one of Paul's associates. And so he's sending a packaged Bible conference, a Pauline Bible conference, right to the Philippians, back to them. And that's what he's going to talk about now through the last part of chapter 2. He's got his word, the word of Christ inspired by the spirit through the apostle Paul, the book of Philippians, the letter that he's sending and the teachers, Timothy, his son in the faith. That's his protege, if you will, his apostolic emissary that goes and teaches with the apostolic authority of the apostles, wherever he goes. And the leader, the, the, the one that they sent Epaphroditus, the Philippians to give Paul the initial offering. And so this is the setup, okay, for uh, sending them back. And he's going to give you a description of Timothy and of Epaphroditus. These are men and how you should respond to them. And let me summarize that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ by giving them our best. And we see the resources that God gives us as enablements, special capabilities that God gives us to advance his interests and his interests are the gospel ministry and the edification of the saints. So if he has something that he treasures like Timothy and Timothy's company and the fellowship that he enjoys with Timothy, he can in prison, in chains, in Rome say, I uh, really just need Timothy to stay close. I don't have anybody else. And so it's going to have Timothy. I would send you, but no, no. Paul sees God's blessings that he gives him as opportunities for him to turn those blessings back to God and honor God with them. And that's what he's going to do in this passage. He's going to send Timothy away while Paul himself remains in prison in the distress associated with his sufferings in prison. And that is exactly what Paul is supposed to do. And we see something very similar. And remember, this is the Christian life of Paul. And I want to bring out these themes whenever we have the opportunity. Let me just hold my place in Philippians 2 and remind you of what Jesus said in the first few verses of the high priestly prayer of John 17. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. That is the pattern of blessing from God and blessing to God. God, glorify me. So that I can enjoy that. It doesn't say that. Glorify me because I feel like a little glory. It doesn't say that. Glorify me so that what you give me, I can turn around and glorify you. Fill up my account so I've got some resources to glorify you with. That's the idea of resources and capability in the mission of the gospel. Even as you gave him, the son, Authority over all flesh that to whom all you gave, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. So God, you gave me these people. I am going to give you these people. It's a constant reciprocation. You gave them to me. I told them of you. You glorified me in their eyes. I pointed them to you. They, you pointed them to me. I pointed them to you. That's the way Jesus thinks of resources in this life, everything is about God, everything. And so my resources, whatever he supplies to me, they're about God's glory. And we want to start looking at our lives that way. What, what's the most valuable resource you have? Your time. Congratulations. Here we are taking our time to fellowship together with God and learn what he would have for us and be equipped for the work. That's, Philipp, that's Ephesians 4.12 or being equipped.
He said, as you gave me authority over all flesh, that to whom you've given to me, I may give eternal life. So I give them you. And then this is eternal life. So you gave me these people. So I gave them eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you. You see, it's, it's, it's ping pong. It's tennis. You kick them to me. I kick them back to you. You kick them to me. I kick them back to you. Whatever you give me is something I can use to bless you with. And that's the way Jesus thinks of his father. This is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. It's a beautiful portrait, but it's easily missed because we casually read. And here's what I think about casual reading of the Bible. I think Christians who only casually read the Bible are spiritually casualties. They are casualties in the work that God has for us because we're not letting it sink in and hit us where we live. When we get resources and say, Ooh, my precious. And we say, finally, I have it. I have the thing. It's me. And now I have it. We have replaced God and his treasury with ourselves. And we have forgotten. Why does God give us resources? He gives us the resources so that we have more equipment and capability to glorify him with. I didn't say give it to me. I didn't say give it to the poor. I said, you are going to seek how you take this glory that he's supplied to you and magnify it to glorify him. Guess what? It's the mission. It's the people. It's the gospel for unbelievers and edifying believers so that they grow and they get on the mission too. Because I'm looking at a room full of Christians who have trusted alone in Jesus as their savior, who, as we just talked about the propitiation and satisfaction and all the things that are true of the blood of Christ. If you've trusted in Christ as your savior, then you have been born into a new life. You have eternal life that we just heard about from Jesus. And that eternal life came with a spiritual gift. Every single one of you, if you know Christ as your savior, then you have his life. And if you have his life, then the spirit of God has given you a spiritual gift, a special capacity that lets you, as you grow into its function, be part of this project of building the body of Christ through recruiting unbelievers to know Christ as savior through training believers to keep all that Jesus has commanded. That's the great commission. You, every one of you, you have a gift. It may be a communication gift. It may be a non-communicative gift. It is something that God will raise you into being as you grow spiritually. What you don't do with a new baby Christian. We are all babies when we're born and we all have to grow up. You don't start off with a new baby Christian that God has genetically designated as some sort of construction engineer spiritually. You don't start off with that baby and give him a hard hat and a shovel and a, tra and a, and a, and a bulldozer. And say, get to work, new baby Christian. We know that you were designated as a construction engineer. That baby Christian is going to have to grow up into what he spiritually has been designated and given as his gift. And so sometimes we want to put on that hard hat and our neck can't take the weight because we're a baby. Never let someone guilt you into service that you are not spiritually equipped to undertake even as I see more and more in the scriptures, my role as encouraging you into the work, the ministry of the gospel, never take from me pressure to go beyond your spiritual growth. But the writer of Hebrews tells everybody to whomever he's writing, all the Hebrews, Christians he's writing to in chapter five, you should all be teachers by now. He means spiritually mature enough to come alongside someone and say, well, it doesn't really work that way. This is how it really works. 
but you can't be teachers because you haven't paid attention. You've become dull of hearing. That's first or Hebrews chapter five and six. All right. So Paul is going to give his very best because he understands the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when God gives us resources, those are opportunities and capabilities to glorify him. And so he's going to send Timothy and he says, now I'm hoping in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that, okay, so correction, uh, they're going to read this with an expectation that Paul will soon send Timothy and they're, they're reading it from the hands of Epaphroditus who came back. I'm sorry, I misspoke. I'm hoping, understand a couple weeks later, they're going to get the letter because, because Epaphroditus is going to travel back. And he's going to say the, the Bible conference with Timothy's coming soon. He's probably going to come and teach them the contents of the book of Ephesians, the doctrine of the apostle Paul that, that they don't have Ephesians yet. So uh, maybe it hasn't circulated to Philippi yet. So they're going to uh, hear this teaching uh, prophetically from Timothy. I'm hoping in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Why? So that I may also be encouraged once I know your affairs. It doesn't say good spirited. It's not the word spirit. It's suke. suke it's the soul. And good soul means to have uh, a warm feeling. It's I can, encouragement because I know about your situation. When I, your dad, hear about you, the kids, that you're doing okay, that you've gotten over your bout with COVID and that the the boss that um, was, was oppressing you got rotated out and you're okay. You're in a stable situation for now with work and health and everything. Okay. I feel better knowing that because I'm your dad. That's what Paul's talking about throughout this passage. I love you and I'm concerned for you. And so I want to know what your situation is. And that's why in part, he's going to send Timothy for, I have no one else same soul. Now I know it's not good English. We would never put this in our you know, static Bible translation. But I just want you to see that good sold and same sold are words that both have this suke, this word for soul in the context. They both show up and the English translators uh, will change the words to be more, to sound better in English. But Paul is thinking about the immaterial and the spiritual and the effective. He is thinking about somebody like-minded who genuinely be, will be concerned about you. Genuinely is a translation for the word for truth. These people are going to um, receive the benefit of a pastoral ministry where the person really is invested in them. Now, this is uh, fodder for everyone. I just told you, you all have a spiritual gift. This, this attacks me first. It, it approaches me and says, are you genuinely concerned like Timothy for the Philippians? Are you genuinely concerned for those to whom God has sent you to minister? Or are you a Christian mask wearer on Sunday? We show up and oh, it was so nice to be here and let's TikTok. Let's get it on. Let's get, let's get this over with and move on to the next thing. Goodbye. Goodbye. It was nice to see you. It's not, my grandfather had a great story about his pastor. Uh, his pastor was a famous preacher down in Dallas, Texas called W.A. Criswell, Wally Amos Criswell. Most of you have probably never heard of him, but Southern Baptists know all about Criswell. People from Dallas area know about Criswell. You ever hear of Criswell? Well, he was the pastor of the largest uh, church uh, in Protestant church in the world. 
I believe, and certainly the largest Baptist church in the world. And there are thousands, tens of thousands. I think at one point we're talking 22, maybe, maybe more thousand people, active members of this church in downtown Dallas, currently pastored by uh, Robert Jeffress. You'll see him on, as a news contributor and a prayer uh, who go to the White House and pray with the president and stuff. All right. So we're talking about the, like the flagship church of the Southern Baptists. And my grandpa would tell me about the experience he had when you would have the shaking of the hands with the preacher. When you walk out, they would go to the, whatever the service was and pastor Crystal would be preaching and they would go out and shake hands. And my grandfather said, you know, I don't think he knew our name at least not, not necessarily. At one point, my grandfather was a deacon, but understand hundreds and hundreds of deacons in this church, 22,000 people. Um, I'm not sure that he knew our name, but he knew us. And he was, it, you could always get that connection when you'd say hi to him and, and go out. And that was one of the reasons that I always was glad to be part of a small church. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and that's the, that's the nature of ministry is, I'm concerned for you. I want you, if I think about what I really want for you, now think about what is Pastor Dave Roseland? What is he after for you? That's really, well, that's kind of personal. Could you please get back to just teaching? No, this is teaching. This is the interpersonal reality of the Christian faith. Do you really believe what God's word says? Do you believe what he says he's going to do with you? Now, what, is, what am I thinking about when I say I want the very best for you, which is my understanding of Christian love. John three sixteen love is to go for God's best. So what am I really after for you? Think about it. Now, here's something, here's something that you have to take on faith. And I have to revisit this constantly. It's a constant refreshment of my memory, of my concentration. You are headed to a judgment seat of Christ experience, which will determine your service for the Lord Jesus Christ forever. The decades of life that are left to you. And in some cases, I'm sorry to say from my experience, there aren't many of them in some of your cases, but the time of life that God has allotted for you that is left is setting you up for how the Lord Jesus Christ evaluates and, and establishes you for this coming rule. I am in it for your outcome at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's how Paul talks about these people all the time at the coming of the Lord, that I will find that I didn't run in vain because you get your reward. Now, in some cases you may not know Christ as your savior and only God knows. And you might've heard. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you never actually said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. Like he died for my sins. And the only way I get to God is through trusting alone in him. Well, certainly for you, if you're in that category, I'm in it for your eternal life, that you would at least come to know Jesus and be declared righteous by grace by through faith. But, but for you who are Christians, I'm not concerned about whether you're going to heaven. If Christ has you, nothing takes you out of his hand. My concern is that you glorify God now with an expectation of greater capacity forever to glorify God in his kingdom. In other words, I want Jesus to say to each one of you, well done, because you took in the word and you didn't just leave and say, oh, that was good. We, we concentrated, we, heard, we came, we heard, we left. But I want you to, having taken in the word, 
believe it, take it to heart, and then do what it says because you keep on believing. And so you do what God has actually said. And so Paul is talking about a man who thinks this way. And we in ministry, all of us, every one of you with a spiritual gift, you need to look at Timothy and say, look, this is somebody Paul could grab and say, he's the real thing. He's really in it for the ministry of the gospel. Are you in your capacity and your giftedness and what you, what God has you doing? There's nobody else for Paul that's doing this work. Now that sounds pretty sparse in terms of this beginning, the whole church throughout the Mediterranean world. It sounds like, um, well, Paul, you've got all these letters you're writing to all these churches. We have other lists of many of your associates. You have all these people in ministry that you've met in all your travels. We've already had the three journeys. And you have in this moment, listen to this, to like how Christianity is falling apart in the world. There's nobody else ministering to Paul who will be concerned like he should be for the Philippians. That's awesome. It's awesome. And I'll tell you why. Because that's what we experience. That's the circumstances we're in. We're in a world that nobody thinks like we think. We're in a, a, a county, 3% of the population, I'm told by that guy, 3% of New London County believes the Bible is God's word. I don't know. Maybe they could be off by a couple of percentage points. What that means is that what I believe will be absolutely insane in the perspective of 97% of the county I live. They'll think I'm an absolute crazy person. For saying for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's what first Corinthians chapter two says. I'm, I'm foolish to the world. And Paul is right with you. There's not a lot of people in the work that really take it seriously, but Timothy does. You do. You, you need to, if you don't. For they're all seeking their own affairs, not the things of Christ Jesus. There it is. They're not, he's not saying they're not Christians. He's saying they're not on mission. Now, when you read casually through Philippians, you've gotten to this a number of times. I'm sure Philippians is an easy read. When you get here, you're like, Hmm, that's really bad. I don't, you know, kind of as I'm blowing through that my, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, that's not good, but think about what he's saying. The only person that I can trust with enough maturity in the word to be serious about the mission to come to you and equip you since I'm in chains is Timothy. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles or the nations. He's the Jewish apostle to all the Gentile world. And the only associate that's side by side with him that could, that would, that he would trust to be serious and, and concerned for these people's eternal destiny is Timothy. Why? Because they're Americans like you and me who are not focused on the mission. They're focused on their affairs. They're worried about the things of them as the Greek, the, the things that, that are the things of them. It means that they're worried about eating, and getting the shopping done and all the things that need to be done. And they haven't hierarchically prioritized the mission of the gospel as job one and everything else, including eating and educating the children, everything else as subservient to that mission. It doesn't mean, it does not mean that if you're not a full-time missionary like Timothy, that you're not on mission. It means that if you're not on mission, then you're not being the full-time missionary God wants you to be. That's a lot of words, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. 
this is a challenge that I don't want to be true of me, and I certainly uh, don't want it to be true of you either, because I'm trying to be like Timothy, genuinely concerned about you. So I find this very applicable when you think of yourself as a functionary in God's mission. I got a spiritual gift. It may be helps. It may be mercy. It may be uh, teaching. It, who knows? God knows. It, it doesn't, you know, when you're born again, there's not like a stamp on your backside that tells you what you are. You got to grow into that and you do what you want as you're wanting in the Lord, what he wants. And you find you're doing what he wants you to do. Teaching, I'm certainly marked out to do that. They're seeking their own affairs, not the things of Christ Jesus. I just want to spend three years on that verse. Do you hear the absurdity? It's back to the pennies versus the infinite wealth. Listen to it. They've cut the consideration of Christ's plan for their lives, Christ's will for their lives, Jesus, what he wants for me. They've shunted that off from their lives and they're just going through the motions of like, I got to take care of my affairs. In this human grab we have in our sinfulness to amass to ourselves or just to get the life that we want to live. I just want to live my life the way I want to live it. Because if I do the Jesus thing, then that'll somehow diminish my ability to kind of take care of my own affairs. So grabbing hold of Christ and whatever he has is a distraction from the life that I really want to live. Do you hear the absurdity? Because if, if, we're, if we're right that for me to live as Christ and die as gain, that everything is about him, that all the riches of all eternity are in him and everything else is nothing, as Paul's going to say in chapter three. Do you see the absurdity to say I'm after my own affairs, so I'm not focused on the things of Christ? I'm going to promote myself by disregarding Jesus. This is the guaranteed way to lose out on everything. Promote yourself apart from him. The other side is the discipleship choice. It's the counting the cost. If I truly believe that he is everything and all the riches are in him, if I want to get rich, if I want to advance myself, if I want promotion, then I let everything else go and just grab him. I'm just whatever he wants. And now it's counterintuitive. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's counterintuitive to say the most self-seeking thing you can do is disregard self and follow your savior. It's the most self-advancement. You are sacrificing eternal riches, which are all in Christ, when you disregard him to satisfy self. That's the last or first and the first or last. It's a totally, I mean, I'm telling you, we're crazy. Because we're talking about serving someone with all our lives that we've never seen. And that's Peter. You trust the one you haven't seen. Christians, we're not talking about unbelievers in verse 21. We're talking about us. We're talking about rank and file American Christendom. It is obvious. So that here you are, a little podunk, as we say down in Texas, podunk rural eastern connecticut where everybody in town knows if they're fertilizing this week <laughs> you know back in the springtime everybody knows what's going on in town and it's real quiet not a lot of traffic just a little country church 
people can't be expected to think these deep thoughts and have these deep commitments. This is where we as the nation of the United States, this is where we came from. A few, a very small remnant of serious people about the word. What kind of people would it be that when you conquer a foreign country that invaded you, that attacked you and killed thousands of your people, that when you conquered them and made them unconditionally surrender, the general in charge of that campaign being made the commander of the, the rebuilding of that country that was conquered immediately ordered a million Bibles, Christian Bibles printed in that language of that conquered people. That's the story of our grandparents, of my grandparents. That's, that's Douglas MacArthur and Japan. Million Japanese Bibles because we conquered the Japanese after they attacked us. And now we're going to go rebuild their country after nuking them. And we did. And we went and preached Christ. I'm not saying we did a great job of it. I'm not saying it was the most unified effort you could ever have. Can you imagine the United States of America saying now, any one of these generals that's all upset right now, that, that let's go print Bibles and give them to these people we just conquered. I mean, it's our choice what to do with them. They're now, they attacked us and so we beat them and now they're going to do it our way. Lucky for them, <laughs> that the rebuilding really worked out great. Remember the 80s when everyone's afraid of Japan economically? I'm just saying we live in a culture that's post-Christian. You can't look left and right and see how to live. You've got to look in the scriptures and say, well, we're getting it all wrong. And what we do, and it's real simple. You say, I've got to go after my education. I've got to pay the mortgage. I've got to do the things. And you make that the mission instead of doing those things in submission to the actual mission God gave you in subordination to the great commission. But you know, Timothy's proven character. I love that phrase, proven character. You know, Timothy's proven character. What about his proven character? That as a, to a father with me, he served like a son in the gospel. This is not a little boy in the house. This is the heir to a business a grown son who's been raised and received the training of his father, not the typical thing where you try to feed the kid and they won't learn and they, they go do their thing, you know, try to figure it out, go slow track and figure it out for themselves. This is somebody that dad trained to take over the business. That's the, that's the context. That's the worldview. That's the, whatever the trade was, dad teaches the son, the trade. And now he is kind of the apprentice that's working in the business as dad's right-hand man. And eventually he takes over. The, that's the idea of how family is supposed to work. And this is Timothy has been good soil. Whatever you fed him, he could take on and grow. And he hasn't gotten arrogant and flamed out in self-importance against Paul. He's stayed humble and faithful. And he served Paul like a son in the gospel. So Paul has the mission. He's the one that the Lord designated as the apostle. Timothy's the son who's been trained up. And then they're a team of father and son. This is a life verse right here. I got all these boys, right? What's it supposed to be like? Are you supposed to send your kids away and let them be part of the world? So that now I've got my family's culture, but the kids are part of the world culture so that I have no influence and training on them so that they don't grow up to think like I think and advance the interests that I've been raised to advance. Or is it supposed to be more like Deuteronomy 6, 5, 6? And I'm supposed to be teaching them God's word as they get up, as they go to bed, when they sit in the house, when they walk on the way. 
You see what I mean? The way you think about this task of parenting, this is the metaphor Paul uses in the spiritual life. He's the spiritual father and Timothy's like a son. It's some beautiful language that because Timothy served, notice he served, he's a mature man of proven character. He's not a mature man of proven character because he just sat and listened and took notes, but he served. He did the work alongside Paul. Remember worldview, as they say, is more caught than taught. Therefore, this one, it's a Greek idiom, but it's the, the, what he says, this one, I am this Timothy person. That's so awesome. I'm hoping to send immediately once I determine how my affairs will turn out. I don't have the information yet about what the Romans are going to do with me in this phase of imprisonment. So I won't send him until we have a verdict and then I'll send him with the news that you can be encouraged to know what God's going to do with me. But I've become persuaded in the Lord that I also myself will arrive soon. So I'm hoping in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon is what Paul wants. I want to send Timothy to you. It's the best person that I have in ministry. And so I'm sending him to the most positive, successful, growing church. When I say positive, I mean, we're saying yes to God. Paul teaches the word. They say, yes, they turn it around in the offering of, of, of the ministry support. So Paul can advance the gospel further. And that's the thank you letter factor to the, to the Philippians. The reason I want to send him is so that I may be encouraged once I know your affairs for I have no one else of the same mind who genuinely will be concerned about you. So I want to send him because you and I Philippians, we got something going on here. We love each other. It's a personal relationship group to pastor or leader, spiritual mentor. And I am concerned for you and you're concerned for me. And you've renewed your concern in this offering, he'll say in the same letter. And so I, you sent me this concern and, and I'm glad to hear the report about you. And I want to send Timothy so he can report about me. And, and it's Timothy is the functionary that I trust to advance the communication that makes the relationship communication makes the relationship. Paul thinks communication with the Philippians is so very important. Personal communication with the Philippians is so very important that he sends his best man to, to facilitate that interaction. It's not just propositional. It's not, it, it's primarily the propositions of God's word, but it's also personal. That's how we're made communications. Some of you are very introverted. You don't want to say a word. You don't want to share. You don't want anybody to know what's going on with you. And it's frankly, you just don't feel like it. You're scared at some level. You're like, I just don't want to break through that glass wall or ice wall of, of interest, introversion, introversion. I just don't want to talk. I don't want to share. I don't want to self reveal because if I reveal myself, then they'll know. Right? And so we don't share who we are because guess what? There's nothing good in me except Christ. But then if you're sharing who you are and for me to live as Christ, then you're sharing Christ. And that's Christian fellowship. And so don't downplay the interpersonal because it's the explanation for why we have all the epistles from the apostle Paul. For they're all seeking their own affairs, not the things of Jesus of Christ Jesus. And this is something that we would lament for these poor Christians surrounding Paul who are not interested in the ministry of the gospel. Oh, what a horrible thought that they're forfeiting eternal rewards by saying no to God. I talk about this sometimes. I believe some sins um, are obvious. The Baptist sins are obvious of uh, commission. 
you know, the old saw about we don't drink or smoke or chew or run with the girls that do or whatever, that these are the things that people think are taboo that you're not supposed to do. Don't do these lists of things. And if you do them, then you've committed a sin, right? And so there's, there's this idea about sin and, and I'll work with you for hours on what the Bible says about sins of commission, fornication being the primary one that the New Testament keeps railing on because as Paul says, for you to get away from it, you got to leave the planet. Everybody's doing it and it destroys everybody that does it. Now that's a sin of commission of doing the thing that God said not to do. Don't do that. And then they do it. Don't eat from the tree. They eat from the tree sin of commission. But as a father, I have become very personally, cognitively, emotionally, dramatically, in every other possible way, aware of sins of omission. Those wooden headed children, (laughs) you tell them one time what righteousness dictates. And here's how it works. I'm your father. God is, and he's a creator and he made everything. He put me in charge over you where I'm humble before him to do what he wants regarding you. And so it's a delegation. And so I give the instructions and you Ephesians six, one, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Right. With me. So righteousness now dictates that I said, do this and you before God are now responsible to do this. That is life. The alternative is death. Is everybody with me? Are we with me? I preach. Does it sound like I preached this sermon once or twice? a day. All right. So it's the best. Thanks guys for the best sermon illustration ever. Yeah. Now, now if I say this is what I want and they don't do it, is that obedience or disobedience? Disobedience. If they don't make their bed, if they don't, um, what, whatever it is, if they don't do what you say, I believe it is just as a disregard of legitimate authority as if they, they do what they're told not to do. Little kid, you say, don't touch that. What do they do? They get right up close to touch and then don't touch that. And they're like, and then 15 minutes later, you're not looking anymore. And they're like, oh, they're touching it. All right. Like, that's, that's a commission. That's a sin of commission. A sin of omission is where you say, I want you to touch that. And more importantly, I want you to polish that. or I want you to fix that. or I want you to do what I want you to do with that. Go put that in the sink. And they don't touch it. They won't do what you told them to do. Because it's the same mental reaction. It's the same spiritual disobedience of negative volition of, no, I'm not going to obey the authority and saying no. And so that's the sin of omission. And when Jesus Christ starts issuing his directives in the New Testament, we all need to be broken all the time. Love one another just as I've loved you. The new commandment. Everybody good on that one perfectly? Are you doing that all the time? Are you loving one another as Jesus commanded you? Is the, are we omitting to obey the Lord Jesus command? Are we little children? <laughs> Why didn't you do what I said? Well, I didn't hear you. I said it three times in one, in two verses. <laughs> John 13, 14, 15. All right. They're seeking their own affairs and we feel sorry for them because they're omitting to obey what God has laid before them. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. The riches that God wants to give you are all filed under his imperatives. The rich, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's no three wishes from the genie or the leprechaun or whatever. 
what you will find from God if you want the riches that he's standing by to pour on you, his beloved son or daughter, is right behind his command. In fact, it's on the same check. The command becomes the wealth because in obedience, you find the joy. In obedience, you find the success. In obedience, you find the fulfillment and the satisfaction in life. And you find yourself in obedience of God in a place that you could never buy. You could never get with any other means what you have when you find yourself obeying God. And so the really strange thing, again, is the counterintuitive person who is disregarding God to advance his interests when all of his interests are only in trusting and walking with God. But you know Timothy's proven character that as a father with me, he served like a son in the gospel. Therefore, this one I'm hoping to send immediately once I determine how my affairs, affairs will turn out. But I've become persuaded in the Lord that I also myself will arrive soon. And so this is one of the indications we have that the Roman imprisonment Paul is enduring was not his final uh, brief, brief, um, uh, connection with the Roman authorities. He is not going to be killed uh, by Nero's subordinates on this go-round. It's going to happen later. But we're beyond the book of Acts. And Paul believes, and we don't have details about how this is going to turn out, but the household of Caesar greets you. Paul is, remember, he's in, in the strategic location for the whole Praetorian Guard to know about the Christian message. And a lot of them are becoming believers. And then the household of Caesar is hearing the message of the gospel because Paul is there. Paul isn't just going to send Timothy, he sends Epaphroditus back in verses 25 through 30. And it's fascinating what he says about Epaphroditus. He says in verse 25, but I regarded it as necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, listen, they're hearing the letter for the first time, right? That's from parchment or vellum, probably really thinly scraped calf hide, really nice paper back then. And that's really fine, small print, right? And, and it's probably, uh, it, it may be multiple leaves, or written front and back, but they've got this letter. It's a letter from Paul. And the man sitting there reading it is reading about himself. As Paul says, I thought it good to send to you Epaphroditus. He's the one that carried it back and read it to them. Email has streamlined this process a little bit. I regard it as necessary to, to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, who is Epaphroditus? That's an interesting name. Sounds kind of interesting to say Epaphroditus. Well, it was a common name in the Roman world in this day. And the Greek speaking, which is the Roman Empire, speaks Koine Greek, very common name in that day because it's one of their deities. It's one of their traditional goddesses. That's the goddess of love and especially sensual love or sex. And that's Aphrodite or Venus in the Roman, in the Latin system. And this is a name that they would give Apaphroditas. This is a name they would give to a boy named after the goddess of love. And so maybe mama thought he was going to be sweet. Epaphroditus. I don't have much else to say about that name except to say this. It's not your fault what you're named. And he's named after a pagan deity, but it turns out he's probably a Christian pastor. And isn't that interesting how that works? My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. 
Oh, I want to be that with Paul. I want to be Paul's brother. I am. I'm his brother in Christ. I want to be his fellow worker. Don't you? Well, if we're working in the mission that he's started here in Philippi and it's now here in Preston, then we are his fellow worker and fellow soldier. Why are we soldiers? Well, because we're at war. Because we're on enemy territory. We're praying the Lord open the door to these families of these children we've ministered to in Norwich. Some of whom have come to our church and become part of our number already. Right? I mean, we want the Lord to do this work. You think that that's not going to carry some sort of spiritual demonic opposition by the powers? The prince of the power of the air? Of course, we're fellow soldiers. But your emissary and minister of my needs. So he's my brother, fellow worker. Paphroditus is reading this, getting teary-eyed a little bit at Paul's send-up of him, of how he's being honored. He's your emissary, the one that you sent and minister. You sent him to minister to my need. Well, it's interesting. They sent Epaphroditus to go minister to Paul. He gets there with a big offering and a big brisket. Hey, Paul, is there a smoker here in the house? Because I'm going to set you up. We're going to get you some good food going. I'm going to need some charcoal. I mean, that's how I would try to do it. I've been watching YouTube a lot lately. I can make, I can make a smoke ring on a brisket. All right. So, so he's going to go minister to Paul's knee. Well, Paphroditus shows up with the sniffles. He's got COVID and he's sick and he's almost sick to the point of death. It doesn't say he has COVID, but it's interesting. We're in a COVID uh, situation. I mean, we're in a hot zone right now. There was one new case in Lisbon. And so now it's red. It's really dangerous. Okay. With COVID. Don't anybody get it. Okay, please. But we need to calm down a little bit. Don't, don't be afraid either. Epaphroditus shows up after this weary travel and he's sick. He was longing for all of you and distressed. I had to send him because he heard about that. You knew that he, you had heard that he was sick. So Epaphroditus apparently showed up to see Paul to minister to him, but then immediately uh, he's ill and Paul has to minister to Epaphroditus. All the best laid plans of mice and men. Well, we trusted the Lord. We prayed for this mission. We prayed that Epaphroditus would be able to go and encourage Paul in his chains. And he shows up and he's almost, he almost dies of whatever the illness was. You had heard that he was sick. So Epaphroditus is ready. He's, he's healed up now and he's ready to go back to, to Philippi because I think he's their pastor. And they've heard the reports that Paul has sent that he's sick and almost died. Y'all pray for him. And so He's anxious to get back now that he's better because that's where his heart is for indeed. He was sick to the point of death. We don't know what the illness was. Maybe it was a virus. <sighs> Have y'all, do y'all get a in primus? It's a great newsletter. It's put, put out by Hillsdale college. It's free. Totally recommend it. One of the, um, the, economic virologist pandemic scholars that has come out with this um, Great Barrington Declaration about COVID-19. Totally recommend the Great Barrington Declaration. They're saying you, you don't do anybody any favors health-wise with lockdowns when there's a pandemic. That's not how this works. No one's ever stopped anything by locking down. And that's what Europe is finding out now. I think the guy's name is Bhattacharya. Jay Bhattacharya, and uh, he, he can't, in Primus, Gary uh, sent that to me yesterday, and um, appreciate it. Read this guy's statement about this disease. Flu is more deadly 
according to a PhD in economics and an MD who is an economic epidemiologist. He says the, the flu in flu season is more deadly to children than COVID-19. I didn't say it. He said it, but we're shutting down schools and sports and all this stuff. Like that's where the danger is. It's much more highly deadly to elderly people than the common, than the flu much more deadly. So the COVID is not a non thing. It's a thing. It exists. It's a dangerous thing, especially to the elderly. But the idea that we're going to stop the virus by closing down is, is absurd. And that's, that's the great Barrington declaration. And they're pointing out the economic consequences where people are being hurt for with economic reasons. See, we don't understand our economy goes down. We're like, Oh no, but we don't know how we're interrelated with the rest of the world. The poor of the world really suffer when our market suffers. Well, we're just feeding wall street and the fat cats. No, this is an interrelated thing. And, and so that's their point is that you're going to get a lot more people die from economic distress and famine because of what we've done with the lockdown than you will from COVID-19. Again, I, I totally recommend you read the Imprimus article by Jay Bhattacharya, Dr. 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 Jay Bhattacharya. Paphroditus is sick to the point of death. It could have been cancer. I don't think it was. I think it was some sort of, I, I personally, my leaning would be, it was something that he got along the way that probably kicked over into pneumonia and it was touch and go, something like that. We've had people in our number that were so sick that they were written off and we prayed for them and God healed them and uh, they, they recovered miraculously. Yeah, Gary, when I was first visiting here, Gary Mackin was in the hospital and they were, they were like the staph infection, there's nothing we can do. Um, there's no hope. He's got a 4% chance of survival. We prayed, do you remember that? 2007, 2006, we prayed for Gary and it was this miraculous recovery. And I don't use that term lightly. I think God healed him. They had no other explanation. It wasn't his time. And I, I know that a lot of you are really afraid of me using you as sermon illustrations, but uh, that's the nature of our, our affiliation. Okay. Um, he was sick. Epaphroditus was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And yet not on him only, but also on me that I not have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm in prison. I'm uncomfortable. You sent him to encourage me and now he's going to die. And that's, that's way too much. So God had mercy on me by not killing him, by not letting him die, by letting him live. Now that is an amazing, amazing portrait into the life of Paul, because we think of him as the stoic guy that wrote Romans. He's saying if he had died on me, that would have been, that would have been grief upon grief. I would have really been, God, God spared me. Have you ever almost lost somebody? Have you ever almost lost somebody and then you had the reprieve? It's an amazing relief. It's an amazing thing when God spares us this way. I also want to point out that Paul, at one point in his life, people could take a handkerchief from Paul's body and touch a sick person, ding, and they were healed. And that is not going on here. That was a temporary arrangement we read about in the book of Acts. That attestation of the gospel has been complete. You are healed eternally. 
by receiving eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the attestation of that healing ability Paul had, apparently he doesn't have it here. That seems to be the case because of the nature of the language here. He was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me. Did I say God doesn't heal people miraculously? I did not say that. I said that Paul's ability to heal at, at will is apparently not happening here. This is a piece of evidence in later Paul. And that, that seems to have been a temporary manifestation of God's mercy. As we close, therefore, I eagerly sent Epaphroditus. And so he's reading this letter to you now. So that because of seeing him again, you would rejoice. Why do Christians rejoice in the ministry with those we minister with and for reasons of success in ministry? That you would rejoice and that I might be free from anxiety. Why is Paul anxious? Because he knows they're anxious and he's concerned for them. There may not be a more uh, intimate portrait of Paul's heart, Paul's attitude, his feeling and thinking about another group of people than you have here. You have some intimacy between Paul and the Corinthians where he's dressing them down. He's giving them a, 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 an epistolary spanking. That's a different type of closeness. But this is the, the people that are getting it right. And he doesn't want to be burdened with the anxiety that they're concerned about Epaphroditus. So he sent him back. Now, here's the thing. You sent him to minister to me, but you heard he was sick. I'm going to send him back. Epaphroditus apparently might've been there to stay just to help him. Nope. I'm going to send him back and, and encourage you that way. This is another reason I think he might be one of the pastors because it's good to send your pastor to go visit with Paul for an extended period. You know why? Not only is the, pa is, is the pastor able to, to, you know, weed Paul's flower bed or whatever, and just encourage him and help him. That's not all. That pastor is able to absorb whatever Paul has and say, Paul, what are we talking about this morning? As you bring him his coffee. And Paul tells you whatever the Lord has for Paul to say, and you're taking notes. And then when Paul is, you can kind of tell he's kind of done with the conversations. Okay, Paul, I think it's time to go back. And then you are recharged as a pastor to go train God's people with the word that you got from Paul, just like I've done by studying what he wrote in Philippians. So again, I think Prophetitis is probably, for many reasons, I think he's one of their pastors or their pastor. And, um, and so that's why they're so upset. And that's why it's time to send him back. <clears throat> There's nothing like experiencing the word of God together like this, Christians. Believers in Jesus Christ, there's nothing like knowing that it's hard. I know you've been through the ringer through this morning. I know you've been through a lot. We've had to listen to me this whole time. It's hard. I know the feeling of leaving a study like this where you learn something and you experience something you had never had by looking at the text closely. I know the experience of going from that and saying, wow, I really feel like we accomplished something and I need a glass of water and maybe a nap. I mean, I know that experience very well and we feel accomplished, especially if today God met your prayers with, with, with success where you were really, really able to concentrate. He met my prayers with success and I was really able to clearly communicate. You feel like we accomplished something. Well, you did, you did. You've been in the word and you're leaving here with some perspective. Don't be like that person. And I have to confess in my life, I have often been that person 
that had that experience and then disregarded it. The message throughout Philippians, the sermon point in every sermon on Philippians is that you and I have no other recourse than Paul's motto, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And what Christ wants you to do is in the power of the spirit he gave you, he wants you to make disciples with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We'll close this morning with the words of life for anyone who may not be uh, enjoying the life. If you don't have Christ as your savior, then that's what we're talking about. We want you to bow your head and close your eyes because this is between you and God. And we love you. And uh, there's, we're part of this in a secondary way. But there's no more loving thing that we can do than make it very clear to you that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. And there's nothing you can do about your own sins. Your sins separate you from God in so many ways. But we were born sinners. We were born in need of a savior before we ever committed a personal sin. And that's the lot and the state of every human being. People often ask, what about the people that never heard? Everybody in the human race is un on notice from their creator because we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I believe that God in his grace and mercy for everyone who looks up to the heavens and says, I want to know my creator. I believe he provides the Paul, the Timothy, the Epaphroditus, the you and me with the words of life. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're being trained up and raised up to share the words of life. But here it is. If you don't have these words, if you don't know Christ, then you need to make a serious adjustment in your thinking. The Bible calls it repentance in some places where you change from your sense of self-righteousness and that you're good enough. And you recognize that the only one who is good is God. And you trust in Jesus as your savior that he is the only savior. The world is religious in its attempts to save itself. We recognize we cannot save ourselves, but Jesus Christ became one of us to save us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Our Father, we praise you for our so great salvation, for the challenge of the scriptures to be on mission and the strength we get from your spirit and the joy that you promise as we carry out the mission. As the Apostle Paul commanded the Philippians to rejoice in mission, Father, we pray that you'll strengthen us to rise to that occasion as well and rejoice in all that you have for us. Let us not walk about in grumbling and complaining, but to shine as lights in this corrupt and dark world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.